Welcome to the SCOTUS Blog Podcast. I'm Jason Harrow. Today's episode features a conversation between Tom Goldstein and Linda Greenhouse of the New York Times. Linda's won a Pulitzer Prize for her coverage of the Supreme Court for the Times, and she's also the author of Becoming Justice Blackman, a biography of former Supreme Court Justice Harry Blackman, which has recently come out in paperback. Now, here's Tom. Thank you so much for coming. My pleasure, Tom. So I would love to talk first about your book, uh, Becoming Justice Blackman, uh, which is an extraordinary uh, insight into the justice and the court based on the Blackman papers. What surprised you the most, or what is it that you learned in writing the book that you was most diametrically different from what you expected or knew about the justice? Well, I guess to start off, the, the, the nature and quality of his relationship with his childhood friend Warren Berger, because I knew when I mean, it was public knowledge the, the kind of joint trajectory of their lives and how they grew up together and they served together and first they were great friends and then they became very estranged. I mean, that was all known. In fact, I had written both of their obituaries, so that was in both of those. But sort of what that was all about and the, the incredible depth of their friendship and also uh, the personality of Warren Berger as a very vulnerable, uh, self-absorbed, but ultimately rather uh, uh, poignant and, and uh, uh, touching figure. I certainly didn't expect, I mean, I knew him a little bit just as a journalist, um, didn't think all that much of him, actually, but I came away from reading his letters uh, with a good deal more compassion for him than I would have expected. One of the things that people often think about when they think of Harry Blackman is the justice changing over time in his ideology. And Harry Blackman is sometimes pointed to, as is Justice Souter, as a cautionary tale for conservatives, as um, embodying the notion that sometimes justices move from the right to the left in their tenure on the court. What about the your research into Justice Blackman, your experience w- in watching other justices? What does that teach you about whether conservatives who want uh, uh, John Roberts to be a very conservative justice and stay that way in the same for Sam Alito and progressives who, uh, or liberals who have uh, uh, a hope and aspiration that they'll move to the left. Do you have a sense of whether these justices are could be in the mold of um, uh, Souter and Blackman or instead more in the very solid conservative mold of uh, Scalia and Thomas, for example? Well, that's that's a a very good question, and actually, it's one I'm, I'm kind of working with, trying to uh, enlarge on the on Harry Blackman's story and and try to see if there's anything we can take away and generalize from it because he certainly did change. You know, he would say, "I haven't changed; the court changed around me," but that wasn't true. He he clearly did change. Now, I'll, I'm I'm going to disagree with you on Souter. Um, having covered Justice Souter's confirmation hearings, I don't think anybody who listened to those hearings with an open mind uh, would be terrifically surprised by the justice that we have. However, I think Sandra O'Connor is an example of a justice who changed a good deal on the bench. Um, So, you know, what can we take away from this? Well, 
on the one hand, I think Harry Blackman's story is quite singular because it's the, it's the analytical thesis of my book that's kind of maybe implicit in there. It's not a very analytical book, but it, that it was the experience of writing Roe Against Wade that changed him, not, not the actual decision, but his response to the public response to Roe, to being uh, lionized on the one hand as a sort of avatar of women's rights, which he was not, uh, he certainly wasn't consciously, uh, and being um, despised on the other and, you know, needing police protection for the rest of his life. Uh, this caused him to, to sort of incorporate Roe into his self-image and to take various other jurisprudential steps that over time, and of course Roe uh, was very early in his 24-year career, so over the next 20 years uh, uh, drove him, I think, pushed him, pulled him in a more uh, liberal direction. So to that extent, it's not really an experience that we can extrapolate from to other justices. But if you step back and say, okay, what is it that that left Harry Blackman and Sandra O'Connor, I would argue, open to this kind of change. Well, uh, they were both people from far outside the Beltway uh, who have the, the slightly disorienting, or in Blackman's case, greatly disorienting experience of a midlife move to Washington into a culture they weren't familiar with. And I think psychologists would tell you, and I think it's empirically true, that, that this kind of uh, personal disruption of one's uh, kind of way of being in the world can really open a person to new influences. Um, there's an interesting book out just now by a, I think he's a political scientist uh, rather than a law professor named Lawrence Baum. It's called uh, uh, Justices, Justices or Judges and Their Audiences. And he makes the point that you can empirically look at justices from, or judges maybe, uh, from outside the beltway versus inside the beltway. And the ones from outside are more open to change than the ones from inside are. Now, obviously, this is a generalization. But if you look at, if you apply that to Chief Justice Roberts, that would indicate that, uh, you know, he's, he's a, a product of uh, the beltway, Washington, legal culture, obviously the star of his cohort in, in the Supreme Court bar, um, very comfortable, um, uh, you know, an amazingly easy, seemingly, but I, I gather from, you know, chatter around the court, truly remarkably easy entry into the chief justiceship position, very well prepared, very at ease. Uh, so the forces for change that operated on a Blackman or an O'Connor are not likely to be operating on him. And to some extent that's true of Sam Alito, although obviously he spent his last 15 years as a federal judge in New Jersey, but he cut his eye teeth in the legal culture of Washington, uh, in the executive branch, and in, in the SG's office. Um, so the sort of discourse of the Supreme Court is not something that, you know, hits him as something completely new. Um, so, you know, that's just a very general observation. But, you know, obviously these are two, I think, highly intelligent, highly qualified individuals. And, um, you know, they'll respond to their new environment um, as they will. Tell us a little bit about what it's like covering the court uh, as a reporter and as um, uh, a reporter for the New York Times. What happens on a decision day when something significant happens uh, at the court? Some important opinion comes down at 10 o'clock in the morning. How is it that you 
get material into the paper? Uh, how does the paper deal with web coverage? What's, what happens over the course of the several hours after the opinion? Well, um, I have to say I generally don't write for the web. Uh, so that, uh, that really difficult task has fallen to a colleague of mine named David Stout, who's the web editor in the Bureau. Uh, whose job it is to get stuff up, you know, kind of quick and dirty. He's, I don't mean dirty. He's a very stylish writer and a very smart guy. And he uh, will use the databases, look at my previous stories about a case. If it's a big case, I would have written about it at the cert grant stage. I would have covered the argument. Uh, then he'll call me up and just make sure he sort of gets the drift. He'll download the opinion. He'll get it up quickly. I don't do that because my feeling is I'm going to give my best effort uh, to getting something done to my satisfaction, and that can't really happen by 11 or 12 o'clock in the morning. So the paper understands uh, that position. I mean, just as an example, uh, when LULAC, the Texas uh, gerrymandering voting rights case, came down the last week in June, um, that was, as you recall, an incredibly difficult case to understand, not only to understand, but even to count the votes. I mean, what was the vote in LULAC? Frankly, sitting here, I can't tell you, but uh, Dave Stout, the colleague I just described, was on vacation, and uh, another colleague of mine was tasked with doing the web job, somebody who usually covers uh, politics, and she called me as I was still sitting there uh, reading after about 90 minutes, and she said, I'm struggling with this. What is the vote count? I said, I don't know. She said, you don't know? I said, I really don't, and I think you could get a good argument going to this day as to what the vote count was in that case. So, you know, that was an extreme example. Um, but generally what I try to do, of course I'm in court when opinions are announced, is just go, go downstairs and make a quick call to my desk saying, here's what it is, you know, here's what I've got today, here's what I propose, here's how I propose to package what the court did today, one story, two stories, and so on. That's a very quick conversation that has to take place by around uh, 1045 because that's when they send up the Washington schedule to New York. And then I just sit and read. And I don't take phone calls. Uh, in the current uh, public relations culture that we're living in and that is ratcheting up uh, geometrically every, every term, you know, the phone will start ringing uh, from people that want to get their sound bites in the paper when they could not possibly have even read the opinion. And I'll say, you know, the first thing I say is, has he read the opinion? Well, he's read the head note, or well, he's read the wire. I say, no. When he or she has read it and I've read it, maybe then we can talk, but not until then. And on something like um, the Hamdan case, the military commission case, I don't think I talked to a single person for three hours. I just sat there and read. Because if you don't, my, at least the way my metabolism works, if I don't read it really carefully without distractions at the very start of the day, the top of the hour, uh, I'm not going to be able to give it that kind of attention um, once the day really gets gets rolling with all the distractions. So that's my working style. And you have to have a piece into the paper when? Well, the way we work, and I think this is probably pretty common, I don't know, um, we need to get what's called a summary into the desk by about 3.30. That is the top of the story. So that would be the top, say, 300 words of the story. That can change, but it's basically you're, you're flagging it to the editors. You know, here's the... Here's the essence and the structure of the story. And then that's used uh, 
for the editors in, in New York to make a judgment as to how the story is going to be played. So by that time, you really have to have conceptualized the story, not have it all written, but you, you kind of know where you're going. And then the final thing has to be in usually by around uh, 6 or 6.30, although if it's you know, a huge story or it's one of several stories, uh, that, can, that can slip until uh, uh, 7 o'clock, 7.30. But that's unusual. My, I usually get stuff in by, uh, by around 6.30. Now, on occasion, um, reporters actually, be, and, and Supreme Court reporters or White House reporters, uh, the tables turn and they become the subject of the story. Uh, and there has been uh, a recent discussion to some controversy over a speech that you gave. Can you give sort of the the backdrop of it and your take on uh, the the issue? Yeah, I mean, if people haven't followed this, then I wouldn't blame them for not... not uh paying a lot of attention to this, but I did give a, a speech uh, back in June at my alma mater, Radcliffe College, uh, to a, a few hundred college classmates and fellow alums um, uh, who were nice enough to be giving me the college's major award of the year. And I gave sort of a generational narrative because I thought that was what the occasion called for, um, looking back at my, the, the collective experience of my college generation. In the course of which... I made a few comments on uh, the passing political scene, uh, such as the fact that uh, uh, the country's under a sus- uh, sustained assault on women's reproductive freedom, uh, that our public policies are in the grip of religious fundamentalism, uh, that the administration has established a law-free zone at uh, Guantanamo Bay. I mean, I thought these were, I didn't mean to create a controversy, I thought these were sort of obvious statements of fact, and I still do. Um, and. Uh, and I guess everybody in the audience did also. It was just a pa- few passing references in a much longer speech that was about a lot of other stuff. Um, and so to my surprise, uh, NPR, um, I guess, came upon this uh, uh, about 10 days ago um, and put up a piece uh, saying that this was a gross violation of journalistic ethics. Well, that was a surprise to me and to uh, a lot of people. So uh, that's kind of where this controversy stands. My thought is if... Uh, after uh, my 38 years in journalism, if people are suddenly so interested in my opinions, it must mean they haven't been able to figure them out um, until now, and they're uh, welcome to make of them whatever they will. Well, thank you so much. It's really uh, great of you to have, have come by and to do this. My pleasure, Tom.